0: Walk on, walk on with hope
1: Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back everyone. We're always advocating for public private partnerships on this show and uh, boy do we have a movie that offers a model. (laughs) Uh, But before we get to that, it's come to our attention that we've had a lot of new listeners over the years. We're not at our humble beginnings anymore. I think it's probably hard to break into a new social group, which is what this podcast is. We are we are your new parasocial we're a, we're, friends. We're an
2: exclusive club.
1: That's right. So uh, we thought it might be a good time to just kind of reintroduce ourselves, explain the concept of the show. Because this is a big movie, folks. <laughs> we might have people listening who haven't listened before. This is the political movie of the year. <laughs> I don't think that's an overstatement, right? I mean, you could say Oppenheimer is bigger, but... (laughs) It's maybe a little bigger, uh, Barbie.
2: But yeah, look, what Will said is true. The growth of this podcast over the past couple of years has definitely uh, exceeded our expectations. And we've gotten so into the groove of doing it that, you know, we forget about the exposition. Uh, There's a lot of people who find the show just kind of in the wild now, which, you know, uh, never used to happen before. There's many of you who will be listening on the Jacobin feed... And you know, you're used to hearing Dan Denver's, uh, you know, brilliant interviews, you're used to hearing long reads, you listen to behind the news, whatever, and you don't know who the hell we are. And you're like, what what is this show, Michael and us? Why is this? Why is the show called Michael and us? Is one of these guys, Michael? Like, what's going on? Yeah, we probably should have changed the name like
1: five years ago. (laughs) But I think it's a little late now. Yeah,
2: there's a bit of a sunk cost thing going on. We'll tell you about the name in a moment. And look, if you're a longtime listener, you can feel free to skip the next few minutes. As I was saying, I mean, now that the show has kind of grown, uh, I've more and more often had the experience where someone will tell me, uh, you know, in a Twitter DM or something, they found it in the wild. They didn't, you know, know that I was the same Luke that they also read in Jacobin. I don't know how that's possible. That's happened a number of times. I had uh, recently the experience of a longtime colleague of my dad's, telling my dad recently that you know he uh, he listened to this show not realizing that i was the host of it
1: how is that possible we say our names on every episode i, I
2: don't know i don't know but lo- longtime fan of the show he didn't didn't realize well, it seems yeah. like a
1: good guy <laughs> if he likes this show i like him
2: Lots of you find it on the Jacobin feed, or lots of you, you know, kind of do know who we are, but uh, maybe you just started listening in the last few years, you know, when uh, we partnered with Jacobin, when we uh, kind of professionalized a bit. Uh, we, Will and I were talking about this earlier, but probably the majority of the life of the show, we were recording it uh, with one microphone. Um, it sounded like uh, it was recorded in a tin can. <laughs> you know, I like to think, you know, you go back to the episodes from like 2018, 2019, show began in 2016, that maybe some of the content was good, but boy, uh, some of them are, you know, the audio production is uh, is not great. You know, I think it's fair to say the vast majority of our listeners are people, you know, who started listening the last two to three years, and so you know, good opportunity to reintroduce ourselves. I mean, God, where to where to begin? Well, I feel like we've told the origin story of this show uh, many, many times, but you know, it's been a while since we've told it on Mike. So I don't know what was our <laughs> what was the road to Damascus uh, moment that uh, that began the Michael and us odyssey.
1: If you were wondering who Michael is. It's Michael Moore. He's the patron saint of the show. This podcast began as an experiment in watching all of his movies and watching all of the movies about him, of which there were many. Michael Moore Hates America, Fahrenheit 9-11, several others.
2: All movies, which it's fair to say, hated Michael Moore, but could not help but copy everything about his shtick. He really was and is one of the most influential American documentary filmmakers, even among the people who decided that he, you know, I mean, he was like one of the Wright's primary folk demons from about like 2000 to, I don't know, 2008.
1: You were at the time, and especially, inspiring lefty intellectual i was
2: at the time a um of are we are we talking about in two, in the early in the bush administration or during uh, in when the 2016 show i okay, want right, to say All right. Uh,
1: i i was a seventh or eighth string alt weekly uh, movie review blurb writer. yeah we've come a long way yeah we have now now we're the most famous public intellectuals in canada probably <laughs> right like yeah now we're like a fourth string uh, <laughs> you
2: know yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, we still don't have any institutional validation, but uh-huh.
2: well, we are partnered with Jacobin. But okay, that, I guess so. But 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 seriously, the, the, all the like Canadian podcast awards and stuff. We never get. Uh, we we got to stop complaining about that. Yeah, because... that's 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 old hat at this point. But uh, it's, it's but it's we should funny. we should be getting Canadian uh-huh. podcast well, awards. I mean, we, you were on national television last night. I was. I've published a book. I have another book coming out. Where's our awards? <laughs> anyway, doesn't
1: doesn't matter. We watched all the Michael Moore movies. This was against the backdrop of the 2016 election, which you may recall who won that election. <laughs> the American election, that is. democracy. That's correct. <laughs> and uh, we continued doing the show because uh, we thought it was fun. Uh, it was a hobby. It was fun to meet every two weeks and watch. I don't know. Um, what were we watching in those days? That Steve Bannon movie we watched? Uh,
2: yeah, Steve Bannon made like a pretty just like, I don't know, uninteresting documentary about Sarah Palin, for example. We were probing that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and then over the years, you know, we just we just continued. The purview of the show expanded to, I think we were just looking mostly at kind of capital P political movies back then, but then eventually it would expand to things like Robert Altman's Nash and eventually it would expand to things like freddie gotfinger you know <laughs> just just anything and i think that that would be the origin of the show We've tried to keep responsive to the current moment. We've tried to let the vibe
2: of what's in the air guide the show. That's right. Uh, well, I think also staying true to our roots and the things that, you know, we're interested in, certainly to be a little reductive about it, you know, I'm, I'm the politics guy, Will's the film guy, and the show kind of represents a, you know, a union of our uh, of our two sensibilities and our interests. So if this is your first time listening, you recently started listening... You know, you'll find quite a range of things that we talk about, you know, everything from uh, you know Kurosawa and Tarkovsky to, uh, yeah, Freddy Got Fingered. And, you know, every so often we'll dive back into kind of our, our real roots, which are, you know, these capital P politics films that Will was mentioning. You know, politics, what a concept is the phrase we've often used to talk about them. These films that, I mean, really to me, are th- I think are among our, you know, my favorite ones to watch and talk about anyway. Although, you know, I, we're fast running out of the really good ones, but these films which there seemed to be a whole run of them, some of them in the 90s, but especially kind of the 2000s, very much like late Bush era, early Obama era films, films that uh, contend to have a lot on their minds. They, you know, contend to sort of tackle the big questions and, you know, fundamentally have, you know, absolutely nothing to say. Uh, Robin Williams, Man of the Year would be an example. Uh, You know, what if Jon Stewart became president? Swing Vote with Kevin Costner. Oh, I I love that one. We have to mention certain of these movies every now and
1: then, long time listeners are well acquainted with them because they are kind of our spiritual compass speechless with michael keaton and gina davis
2: <laughs> uh the, all your, all your favorites.
1: the films of alexandra pelosi i mean you know this is the real bread and butter i think and we are gonna talk about a political movie on this podcast a kind of different kind of political movie this is well we'll get to it in a moment <laughs> but we, we're, we're interested in Kitch and camp of all political persuasions, whether it's liberal or conservative or whatever, whatever category this Those one. Those are the only under. two that exist. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think this would would be conservative then. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> one last thing we should mention before we're I mean, both of us are salivating to talk about this movie, hottest political movie of the year. We do have a Patreon. That's another thing uh, people will sort of say in the wild. Less so since we started mentioning it, but uh, a lot of people don't actually realize we have a Patreon where you can get an extra episode every single week. Also lots of fun bonus content, various interviews that I do for Jacobin and elsewhere, latest interviews with the great-grandson of Oscar Mayer of Wiener fame, Nick Mason, the drummer from Pink Floyd... Got a great discussion about how uh, Joe Biden bungled student debt relief. Those are just some of the latest ones. You can also hear recent Patreon episodes, like Will's uh, fantastic solo documentary episode about uh, Orson Welles, uh, the first podcaster.
1: Yeah, other recent Patreon episodes have covered such topics as Sylvester Stallone's Rambo, the 2008 film.
2: It's not very good.
1: Uh, The Flash, the recent blockbuster that wasn't. I can't even put into words how bad that is. <laughs> air force one and of course the greatest piece of film criticism of all time we talked about the nostalgia critics review of pink floyd's the wall (laughs) and by the way even if you can't subscribe you should follow it on patreon anyway because we post the free episodes there too you'll be you'll be apprised of what's happening in the michael and us cosmos
2: yeah it is it is uh good to have everything in one place uh you can also listen on soundcloud or your favorite podcast app if you feel so inclined do take 10 seconds give us a rating leave a review even if it's just to say uh, this is good or hey you might want to say it's bad go nuts but apparently ratings and reviews do help with the algorithms. so just like with the film we're going to talk about today you'll you'll be spreading awareness about important issues just, just by doing so well
1: I will say we were inspired to go full self-promotion by the end credits of Sound of Freedom it's another Michael and us at the movies episode we just got back from the Carlton Cinema in Toronto and
2: if you don't know what this is I mean unlike a lot of other you know uh, movies that are in theaters now that we've talked about very few of you listening like unless you're unless you're also you know fellow content creators it's very unlikely you've seen this despite the fact that it is beating mission impossible at the box office but it, it is very much a case of you know Will, you said as we we're on our way back how did nixon win you know i don't, I don't know anyone who voted for him how did joe biden win uh, i don't know anyone who voted for him <laughs> well he didn't well two thousand mules look it up
1: (laughs) you know the thing about the two thousand mules thing is there's a lot of projection going on from the right yes because this movie is two thousand mules pushing it over as of this recording it has made 149 million dollars at the box office in the united states alone that's 10 million dollars more than mission impossible dead reckoning it is honing in on Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. (laughs) It's number four this weekend at the box office after its fourth week. That's insane.
2: Um, Well, that makes sense because it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) How'd that make you feel?
0: Giving a child his freedom. So good. You have been at this for 12 years. My Why are you doing it? Because God's children are not for sale. It is the fastest growing international crime network that the world has ever seen.
1: For Homeland Security, you know we can't go off rescuing Honduran kids in Colombia.
0: This job tears you to pieces, and this is my one chance to put those pieces back together.
1: We weren't going to talk about this movie because we figured, well, you know, Chapo's done it, or you know, it, it looks boring. Yeah, know? I mean, we,
2: we don't, we don't, we definitely don't have a like Chapo's done something so we can't talk about it rule. But I mean, my, my impression was just that, like, it's really boring. And the thing is, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> It is incredibly boring, but what had not been adequately conveyed to me by any of the reviews I read or anything I listened to on it was that in addition to being boring, it's also just incredibly unpleasant.
1: Oh my God. I mean, the fact that people are going to see this
2: movie <laughs>
1: certainly many liberals will see things like they'll watch like the obama netflix show because like it, well, it's, it, it
2: it's good for you that's good for you yeah like this is a hack example for a few years ago and it, in, in this case it failed but i mean you know who can forget you know the marketing around the recent ghostbusters movie where there were you know buzzfeed articles that were like 10 nakedly capitalist ways you can support the new ghostbusters movie and it was just like go twice buy the merch whatever there is a thing now where marketing people have figured out that if you tell people that just seeing this and paying for a ticket is a form of activism, that can often work. And the thing is, you know, I think conservatives are actually winning this arms race based on what we just saw, because liberals will be like, yeah, go see this, it's good for you. Whereas this movie is like, by going to see this, you're fighting modern slavery. (laughs) (laughs) This awful and tedious and unpleasant film that you're seeing at the shitty movie theater at your local strip mall, you're actually part of a holy war against you know the demonic forces of evil
1: well with a lot of the sort of liberal culture that you're supposed to see as a form of activism the ground that has been seeded is that actual political change is impossible but what you can do is change culture and politics is downstream from culture and so, you
2: change culture by buying stuff right, right. or not buying it and, <laughs> and if you support something that
1: that changes hearts and minds one by one you know and that's the best case scenario you know the worst case scenario is well maybe you won't change other hearts and minds But you yourself will be a good person. You yourself will be enlightened. (laughs) And then there's this movie, which is actually saying this is direct action. It's saying the more eyes on this, the more power, the more this becomes a direct political issue. And and in fact, the movie ends with Jim Caviezel in the credits saying, here is a QR code. Buy as many tickets to this movie as possible that can be distributed to your friends and colleagues. Yeah,
2: this film has something that I've never seen ever before, which is that when the credits start rolling, a little counter appears in the in the corner of the screen a little ticker and it says you know two minutes 30 seconds counting down to a special announcement edge of my seat yeah. waiting for this the lead actor in the film appears and you know you know it's like uh, well folks we've had a lot of fun tonight but you know <laughs> <laughs> you know it's <what's> not fun <laughs> child free sex the, mo- the yeah. all children <laughs> yeah
1: by the way, this is a movie about child sex trafficking. Boy, is it ever. So, content warning, folks.
2: Yeah, and uh, let's just say, uh, this movie is not very subtle. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> and uh, you're probably going to hear a lot of irony on this episode. We're going to probably be laughing a lot, because that is the only way that you can possibly subject yourself to this movie. It is an absolutely rancid text. I mean, yes, it's very boring, very tedious. Everything about it is very predictable, beat by beat. But it consists of so so many kind of unpleasant shots where the camera will always linger like two or three seconds or more after the shot should have finished.
1: Think of all those classic movies where Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint like kiss and then it cuts to like the train going through the tunnel or right, something. Right, right. Well, imagine that 50 times in one movie for like child sex trafficking. (laughs) There are multiple scenes in this movie of like a child looking frightened on a bed and a very large and unpleasant looking man is in the
2: room and then he closes the curtain. And then the camera will just linger on the window for like 10 seconds or something.
1: And that's one of the, I think, interesting things about this movie's success, because to some extent, the box office of this movie is astroturfed. But then in another sense, I mean, you can only astroturf so far, People are seeing this movie and like, God, is this somebody's idea of a good time? I mean, Jesus Christ.
2: Well, I mean, I think it is uh, because, uh, you know, the movie going experience, we always try to build that into the discussion when we actually go to see movies on this show. And I mean, this was, this was certainly interesting because, you know, if you're not from Toronto, you won't know the Carlton cinema, but it is, you know, kind of a smaller cinema. I mean, the screen we're watching it on is maybe like four or five times the size of like a regular TV. It was pretty small. Well, like a 30 seat, 40 seat theater, not... Not very many people there. But uh, as we're going in, you know, Will had bought the tickets online and I was waiting. You know, I was just like sitting there thinking like, God, I hope they don't like say the name of the movie because there's this people <laughs> around. Right. But sure enough, they sure enough, they did.
1: And she says it as loudly as possible. Uh, that's two for sound of freedom two
2: for sound of freedom. And this lady was standing there who looked like she was kind of like rooted there in some way or she just, I don't know, materialized from the ether. And she was like, oh, that's a that's a that's a good one. And it was it was a very much a like, hello, brother. Have you heard the good news? Did Angel Pictures, like,
1: plant her there as, like, the same way that at a polling station, each party has a representative to audit the ballot <laughs> yeah. counting? Yeah, it's a scrutineer. <laughs> yeah. We saw the movie and there were trailers. I mean, it was
2: so <laughs> oh, a- I, This is the, one of the best things about seeing right-wing movies like this is they're part of an entirely parallel cultural ecosystem that is not... It doesn't have as much money behind it as like if you go to see The Flash or something. You know, if you go to see a real movie. This movie is better than The Flash, yeah, by okay, the way. Can fair, I just say fair, that? Fair play. Yeah, I don't know why that was my go-to example. Point is, it has a real budget. It's, you know, 14 and a half million or something. But, you know, we're not talking about a big studio film. Nonetheless, I mean, there's a whole parallel right-wing ecosystem where, you know, films still make millions of dollars, you know, they cost millions of dollars, millions of people may see them, or at least, you know, hundreds of thousands. They're very influential within, you know, what tend to be fairly cloistered cultural spaces. And what's great about going to see one is you get to see all the previews. So you get to see, you get you get a you get to kind of dip your toes into the kind of wider pond of uh, you know right wing movies. And in this case, it seems like all the promos were for other films by the studio that made this film.
1: Yeah, they must have four-walled it. Like they must have just like rented the theater for a flat fee, and they collect all the tickets. I don't know. That's the only explanation for the weird like parallel universe trailers that we saw.
2: Yeah, and by the way, extreme like sort of blood and sword vibes emanating from those trailers oh yeah hard to tell what the movies were about but they they were not fun
1: but you say that there isn't a big studio behind this well funny story this film was actually made and completed in 2018 it was made independently but there was a distribution deal with no less than 20th century fox in their latin division but when fox was acquired the next year by disney the movie was shelved and the (laughs) producer yeah yeah what are they hiding right Yeah,
2: yeah yeah
1: the producers of the movie had to raise money to buy the movie back in the little segment that ends the the, The special announcement yeah, Yeah. the announcement by Jim Caviezel in the credits he said that we completed this movie five years ago and every roadblock was put up the implication of course being that like the
2: the elites don't want you to see this yeah yeah the people
1: drinking the blood and you know
2: reading the protocols
1: of the elders of Zion and Hollywood don't want you to see this movie
2: but so Will you alluded to this already and just before we get to the plot can you lay out a little bit like just the mechanics of the sort of pay it forward scheme that is to a very large degree responsible for the sort of juiced box office numbers this film is generating
1: well there was a qr code that we saw at the end of the movie where as mr Cavizel said you know it's so important buy tickets for your friends buy tickets for everybody you know if you're strapped for cash maybe just buy two or three if you've got a lot of money buy 20 and the tickets don't have to be redeemed Now, what I understand is there are a lot of church groups and a lot of political organizations that have bought, like, huge bulk orders of tickets. Like, you can imagine a church can buy hundreds of tickets for a movie like this. Now, I know there have been reports of, like, sold-out screenings that, you know, people go inside and they see two people in the audience. I'm sure that was probably true in, like, the first couple of weeks. But like I say, the movie can only be astroturfed so much. I would love to know what the actual attendance figures are. In a weird way, I kind of respect the grift. I wish people behind cultural products that I like can organize something like this. Can we get church groups behind, I don't know, the films of Hong Sang-soo or something? <laughs> you know, put one of his movies, number three, at the box office ahead of ahead of Indiana Jones. I will say that there were people in the audience at like the noon matinee that we saw today that were probably like, Fifteen people, you know, was,
2: is that accurate? There was a lady in front of us who, about fifteen minutes in, just walked out. And I think, you it's, know, the, the there were so
1: the, many scenes of child molestation the, leading up to that. It's the, like the, the
2: thought occurred to me: <laughs> we should specify. I mean, I don't think there's any actual child abuse that is depicted on screen. But what there is is the film trying to make you think about it a lot. I mean, they show it shows you everything but.
1: Well, it opens with a montage, you know, in Mexico of you know a lot of kids being sent to like a, a so-called modeling agency in the opening credits you know it's kind of like the controversy around that movie cuties on netflix a couple years ago do you remember that documentary that got a lot of you know right-wing people calling netflix a bunch of groomers because it was a documentary about child models and they said oh this is sexualizing children uh well i thought a lot about that in the opening credits of this movie where basically the opening scene is a
2: bunch of but it's a bunch of children doing like a photo shoot, basically. Yeah, yeah,
1: and having and lipstick I, put on them. And immediately I was th- I was thinking like, oh my god, I really... I, I don't like what this movie is making me think. I don't like being here and seeing this, even though you're not actually seeing the thing. You're being told to think about the thing instead. So anyway, all those children are abducted, and that's what kicks the movie into motion.
2: Yeah, and then as the credits roll, there's this kind of disjointed sequence of scenes that are just I mean it's it's ostensibly real footage of you know sort of like grainy camcorder footage of you know children being abducted like you know two guys on a motorcycle you know driving by a house picking up a child or something I think you see some of that towards the end of the movie as well yeah I was sinking in my seat during that well I feel like uh, someone else made this point in a review of the movie I can't remember where I heard this I really think this comes right out of the sort of right-wing you know social media ecosystem that I, I mean drives might be the wrong word but it's certainly sort of been the conduit for a lot of these kind of, you know, right-wing moral panics, you know, uh, QAnon, or at least QAnon-adjacent stuff. Because what do you see all the time on social media uh, here and elsewhere? You see kind of decontextualized images, you see clips that are sort of, you know, the person tweeting them may not have them sourced, you know, they editorialize on them in a certain way. And if you kind of prime yourself to believe that, you know, something associated with X is either must be good or it must be bad, then, you know, you're probably going to receive it, you know, as the person. uh, captioning it sharing it whatever posting it intended and so I think that these sequences really do sort of mirror the online epistemology of this ecosystem which is presumably where a lot of the people who are seeing this film in earnest kind of you know that's that's the part of the internet on which they dwell
1: anyway in the first third of this movie there's definitely a belief on the part of the filmmakers that to fully communicate this horror you've really got to, you've really got to wallow in it the
2: first third of this movie is probably one of the most unpleasant like thirds of a movie I've ever seen like you basically follow a shipment of children from the
1: abduction to the transportation to the acquisition.
2: Right. And the main character played by Jim Caviezel, who's a cop, uh, when we're introduced to him, his partner is quitting. He's you know, they're part of the like, I don't know, the anti-molestation unit at ICE or something. It doesn't really make sense because I think they're associated with the Department of Homeland Security, but then you see them leaving the building and it says Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. I don't know. Anyway, they represent the the law. They're the good guys. And yeah, his partner is quitting because he just, he just can't handle it. And the, the one kind of speck of ambiguity that the film kind of achieves and then, you know, promptly stifles is the film kind Kinda of lets you think for a second, and this is where I was almost—I was almost on the verge of being like, okay, well, the last thirty minutes have been really unpleasant. But what if this film actually has a twist and it does something unexpected? Because the main character, who plays uh, a guy who I gather is a real guy, uh, Tim Ballard. The cops bust this guy who has a whole bunch of child pornography, and then Ballard starts getting really uh, method with them. You know, he starts trying to make the guy who's now an inmate think that you know it's like I'm I'm one of you. I've read your I've read your book, and you know the criminal's having none of it. He's like, you expect me to believe this, whatever. But then you know he goes through the whole process of kind of earning this guy's trust and uh, basically tries to buy a child from him. And the film, for a split second, you're kind of like. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, if if this is a really black-pilled right-wing film, maybe it'll actually be interesting, and it'll turn out that the cop is actually a bad guy, and it's about the deep state, and it's about how, you know, how deep does this go? And that's what the rest of the film is gonna be. But then, you know, once I'd kind of, like, caught my breath a bit, I was kind of thinking, well, this movie, you know, this is, movies make it made $150 at the box office. It's a right-wing movie. They're not gonna depict, like, an ice guy as anything other than just, like, a thin blue line between good and evil. And a fucking course, that's that's what it is. He's able to use uh, you know, this sting operation to find one of the children who we see abducted uh, in the opening scene of the movie. Having arrested him, he finds out, and you know, we've known this from the beginning of the movie, that this little boy's sister was taken as part of the same trafficking operation as well. And he basically tries to persuade his boss, uh, you know, let me go to South America. You know, I want to I want to find her. So, yeah, Tim
1: Ballard has been on the job for a long time. The job is eating him up from the inside. Uh, One of his duties is he has to watch all the child pornography and take detailed notes on it. Very unpleasant line of work. And when he meets the father of the child that was saved, the father is still wrenched because his daughter was not recovered. And he basically makes a promise to the father. I'll find I'll find your daughter. And his big bone of contention with the department is, yes, they've caught, you know, however many hundreds of pedophiles and child molesters, but that's where their job ends. They don't find the children. They don't save the children. And they
2: won't, and they won't let me operate outside of America's borders. They won't let me pursue righteousness, you know, wherever, wherever it needs to be pursued.
1: That's right, because most of the children are in, in Mexico right now, or they're in South America. So he gets a $10,000 budget from his generous boss to go down to Columbia.
2: By the way, that scene is so fucking funny where, you know, the movie's trying to make a point about like red the, tape the, and bureaucracy. Yeah, the, the and... cumbersome bureaucrats are stopping us from freeing the children. But then all it takes is just like, you know, there's some like generic cop dialogue where he's like, oh, you know, we can't send you there. You can't take the law in your own hands. If I send you, yo, DA's going to have my ass, whatever. Uh, and then after like, you know, 30 seconds, he's just like, okay, whatever. Yeah, go take as long as you want here. You keep it under $10,000, you know, come back in one piece. So here's where the movie gets really interesting. So he goes down to Columbia where, where he meets with Vampiro,
1: played by Bill Camp, giving, I think, the best performance in the movie. Bill Camp, very dependable character actor. I think he brings a little bit of texture to this role and he plays a former Colombian drug baron who's been reformed because and and this I really love his origin (laughs) story
2: this this scene is like I don't know man so we find out
1: (laughs) that Vampiro yeah he used to be a a bad hombre he used to (laughs) love sex workers and uh, drugs and the whole bit but his road to Damascus moment occurred when you know he ordered a a special lady and she came up and after the deed was done he
2: realized she wasn't 25 after all
1: yeah uh, somehow his eyesight failed him before that he saw you know a little tattoo on the back of her foot that he thought wow that looks like a child's tattoo and then he finds out from her that not only is she not 25 uh she's 14 buddy like do you, do you have eyes Yeah. Like... So
2: the, the, the film does not examine this it does not like that the character just for the rest of the film is just like a noble character this does not seem to bother like the hero of the movie at all and very so, very strange and
1: he's decided you know vampiro has decided that you know he doesn't like red tape and bureaucracy he <laughs> <laughs> what he actually likes to do is uh, pose as a child molester, buy children, and then set them free. Now, you don't have to be in Mensa to, like, poke holes in this. I mean, others have pointed out that you're you're just feeding the market.
2: He's creating demand. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, this is like, you know, at one point the character talks about, ah, I hate bureaucracy. And it's like, well, I mean, I don't think buying three children a year and then setting them free is exactly a replicable model (laughs) of law enforcement.
2: It's funny because, like, we talked off the top about how this film is trying to represent just the act of going to see it as a form of activism. And one of the things that he's that the main actor says in the monologue at the end is you know every person who worked on this movie every person who was in it you know they took a stand and the implication is you know so should you but I mean if this film is to be read as any kind of like prescriptive text yeah what is the prescription here it's like what everybody should uh, what become a criminal and then become a reformed criminal what yeah like does like sting operations to catch the real bad guys when everybody quits their job and becomes like vigilantes in other countries i think it's more nuanced than that i think it's there needs to be a new
1: public private partnership model spearheaded here so tim ballard would in real life become the founder of a group called operation underground railroad which by the way just a week ago he he stepped away from which is very strange But this is a militia group, basically. It's an underground anti-trafficking group that's been quite controversial in the world of law enforcement. You know, many in law enforcement regard them as, you know, at best an irritant, at worst, you know, actively counterproductive. Um, Although we do see footage in the end credits of this movie of the successful raid that this movie was built around, which I also do not think is a, a replicable operation. We'll get to that in a sec. Ballard in this movie, he has the philosophy of go big or go home. He says, Vampiro, you've been getting one child here, one child there.
2: What if we built an entire palace where we could have like a much bigger sting operation? What if we what if we concentrated this all in one place? So the act two of this film, I'm not joking about this. They basically they buy the island where Billy McFarland shot the Fire Festival promo video. Okay, and then they build their own like little St. James on this island. And to fund this, <laughs> yeah, they get some kind of
1: like they get a rich guy. They get like a
2: Saudi real estate state baron or something who's like worked with the police
1: before. The makers of this movie are not wholly unschooled in the power of storytelling. No, Uh,
2: they've seen Bowling for Columbine (laughs) and what happens here is basically Michael Moore putting the picture of like the little girl at, you know, the doorstep of Charlton Heston's house. Yeah, so
1: Caviezel, (laughs) as Jim Ballard, goes to his house and says there is a $150 million industry of child sex trafficking and you know what? It's going to get bigger and bigger and there's going to be more and more demand. It's going to be Walmart And just like Walmart, it's going to come
2: to your town. And first, this guy, like, deplorably is like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Get out of my house. I'm not going to give you tens of millions of dollars to build... A sex museum on an island. to build, like, an island brothel. Uh, It's not going to happen. But yeah, then he shows him the picture, and yeah, whatever, he funds it.
1: Yeah, he says, okay, don't think about, you know, two million children. Think of this one child, this one little girl, Uh, which is the art of storytelling, isn't it? You know, put a personal face on it. So they get together they find the brothel madam basically of child sex trafficking yeah, who, who in have seen
2: at the beginning of the film as well
1: they court her they say we need 50 kids and here's the island and here's the date and we've got 10 or 12 vips coming and so they get that and ballard who by this point has left his job with the feds calls up his old boss and says it's at this date and time we got 50 kids coming get the marine force just off bay and the raid is successful and you know we see footage in the end credits of this raid being pulled off so i i guess it happened again i don't think this is a replicable model this movie's prescription seems to be we got to outsource law enforcement to individual vigilante groups of people with a deep interest in child molestation who of course can be trusted we can trust these freelance crime fighters to buy a bunch of children and round them up on an island and then like call us and then we'll make the arrest. I think I think that's basically this movie's prescription. Yeah, and, why hasn't
2: someone thought of that already? And I, I think
1: I think we don't. One doesn't really need to get into why that's not only impractical, but not advisable either.
2: Now, uh, at this point in the movie, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was thinking like, oh, thank God, the movie's over. That's just the end of Act 2, okay? This is such a long movie. I think it's over two hours, or at least, it's at least two hours. Oh, yeah. Felt like a lot longer. And there's, there's a whole Act three, where his main hope for this raid, he's actually like disappointed that he's rescued like these 50 kids because because uh, that one little girl Yeah, she's not among them so uh, it's at this point where he's he decides to do a daring raid into I guess you see like a map and they're like, planning this mission and, and, there's a like, map
1: where there's, there's one the country that just has there's, there's, pedophilia yeah, written on it the
2: Colombian cop is just like oh we can't go there gringo that's pedophile territory you know? even the military
1: doesn't go there because the pedophilia <laughs> yeah, is just yeah. too prevalent
2: yeah yeah, yeah. so you normally be like drug traffickers or whatever but this is just pedophile country but yeah so they go there they pose as doctors and i think one of the most unconvincing ruses because they're like you know the the, the guys with the Kalishnikovs or whatever come up the river and are like you know holding the gunpoint and they're like it's okay we're doctors from the united nations and it's like i feel like that's not how the united nations would like send doctors <laughs> just in some little like leaking like riverboat to go find the heart of darkness and you know distribute uh, vaccines or whatever not very convincing but yeah whatever so he infiltrates the camp where these guys not really clear what they're doing. Or what is, well, they have know, a campfire they, every they, night they where have, they say have a pedophile base camp where they, you know, they, a, they, they sing, say they play a, flamenco guitar. They, say, they, they like, say
1: we have to play the most Hispanic music possible right now. And we have to play it really loud. Yeah, every
2: song has uh, every song has the, you know, the same two chords, a semitone apart. It's that kind of thing. And yeah, whatever. He uh, he beats up the guy, uh, you know, that's, that's holding little girl. Kind of leaves all the other kids, behind, which is too bad. Gets her back, takes her home. You know, I don't know. That's the end of the movie. There's like, you know, she reunites with her family. He reunites with his, which it's great. because Oh, we didn't his, even mention his, his, his wife. His family, they're barely in the movie. His wife, and, by the way, is played by
1: Academy Award winner, yeah, Mira Sorvino, <laughs> who's in it for at most five the minutes. The family's
2: barely in it, and it's awesome. Every every time, uh, like the two or three times in the movie, we see him just like coming home from his nine to five, like job or whatever. Every single one of these is shot like his family hasn't seen him in years. You know, he's coming back from Vietnam or something. So
1: if this were a good movie, this would be a source of productive tension. Like, in any normal movie... Just if you had your screenwriting manual of how to make a normal hack Hollywood movie.
2: Yeah, she'd be like, you need to get out of this. Think of our children. And he'd be like, baby, this is what I love. I can't quit. And she'd be like, sometimes I think you love the game more than me. And then, I don't know, he'd storm out or something.
1: But instead, the like three times we see Mira Sarvino <laughs> in this movie, she's just like, yeah, that's great. She's like, like go.
2: Spend six months abroad. I don't care. Yeah, go away. Go
1: buy a bunch of children.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: that That's terrific. There's definitely... Nothing suspicious about you, my husband, <laughs> buying a bunch of children in South America for work. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the the movie could be with very little effort could be like 15 percent better just by making her more of a character (laughs) uh so yeah mission accomplished he saves the daughter at the end of the movie like the whole movie is just like children being brutalized and children cowering in fear and children like being on beds awaiting you know horrific abuse and then when they're saved they're just like doing patty cake and they're playing games and they're
2: laughing and they're chanting there's like the the little girl goes home and she starts playing a song on like a drum and singing and then subtitles appear on the screen and what she's singing is God's children are not for sale. Which is the catchphrase of it's, this movie, yeah, by like the way. it's like a slogan that we hear throughout the movie. It's very funny because it says that and then like a bunch of captions appear that tell you how big like the market for child sex trafficking is. Seems a little disjointed to me.
1: But yeah, you know, you see all these children who like, you know, the movie really fetishizes the kind of youthful innocence of the children to the point where like after they've gone... It's
2: very uncomfortable. I really didn't like
1: it. Oh yeah. After they go through these horrible experiences, experiences you see them just you know perfect precious little angels you know big Bambi eyes and yeah they're playing games they're singing and it's like okay these kids would have so much PTSD based on like what you've told me they've been through and of course I'm sure the makers of this film would be like totally in favor of any you know free mental health services you know any free hospitalization that's required for these children you know everyone would get five social workers and not have to pay for it because these these are privileged children of course
2: yeah, that seems <laughs> hacked to point out, but I mean, it's it's true. it's a it's a necessary point to make. But yeah, so we should talk about the title of the movie because that that also appears as sort of a slogan as well. This was for me. I mean, obviously, this was a, a roller coaster ride of emotions watching this movie because it's so unpleasant, and you're just trying to build a shield of irony to protect yourself from just the like f- foul emanations that are radiating off of it. But there was one part that honestly, like, I almost laughed out loud at them because I could not believe how hacked this was. Where uh, right at the end of <laughs> Act Two, when you know they're on they're they're on the fire festival island once owned by paulo escobar they've rescued the children and then the children are all just kind of like you know yeah they're playing they're singing whatever and then the sort of reformed uh you know crime lord character or whatever is like do you know what that sound is and i turned to will and i was like i bet it's the sound of freedom and then you know long dramatic pause like everything else in this movie like two or three seconds too long and then he just goes that's the sound of freedom <laughs> i i mean <laughs> I don't even know how to make fun of that.
1: So you may be wondering what happened to Tim Ballard. This is an article that I've got open from Vice. Tim Ballard has stepped away from Operation Underground Railroad, org says... So the VICE article says in recent days sources with knowledge of OUR that's Operation Underground Railroad began to tell Motherboard that Ballard had left the organization. By one account he'd gone to donors in a state of upset, saying that he'd been forced out and asking for their help with a new organization. Another person who's worked with the group said that to the best of their knowledge he was no longer with OUR and was focusing on his work with the Nazarene Fund, a Glen Beck-backed organization that has focused on religious minorities in the Middle East but has more recently operated in Af Afghanistan and Ukraine. A third person familiar with OUR fundraising said that they had heard just this week that Ballard had broken with the organization. In a statement, an OUR spokesperson said, Founder Tim Ballard has recently stepped away prior to the launch of the film Sound of Freedom. The article goes on to say Ballard, who was appointed by the Trump administration as co-chair of their Public-Private Partnership Advisory Council to end human trafficking. God, I was joking about that earlier, but it turns out turns out that actually is the message. A group tasked with advising the federal government on anti-trafficking policy has long been a highly controversial figure. A variety of lurid stories he's told about his and OUR's improbably cinematic exploits have turned on closer inspection to not be accurate, and the organization was subject of a protracted criminal investigation examining among other things, whether OUR operators engaged in sexual acts with human trafficking victims, whether OUR operations had created demand for trafficking victims, and whether OUR has committed human trafficking itself by enticing people who were not previously traffickers with large sums of money. That investigation ultimately closed without charges being brought, but did real damage to the organization's image with donors, according to multiple sources who have spoken with Vice News over the past three years. OUR nonetheless raises tens of millions of dollars each year based largely on Ballard's image and reputation and that of the supposed jump team which OUR claimed went abroad to enact daring raids and rescues trafficked women and children
0: hear that that's the sound of freedom
2: we've talked about the plot and we've talked about the various kind of uh, ethical issues with this film, how unpleasant it is. But I would like to talk about its politics just a little bit, because I do think uh, it's in many ways a pretty sort of revealing and emblematic right wing text. I will confess to being, <laughs> like beyond what I've said already, a little disappointed with it because I was actually hoping for a film that was more black-pilled than this. This is a film which is sort of billed as a QAnon movie and, or as the QAnon movie. It has, you know, as you quoted off the top, the filmmaker, uh, the director, I guess it is, or the writer of the film, you know, has said things that are, you know, pro-QAnon, QAnon adjacent, whatever. But this movie is missing what is in many ways the key ingredient of QAnon. It has other elements. I can see why somebody who's into QAnon, why it would speak to them. But the thing about QAnon, the, the fulcrum on which the whole thing hinges is a kind of deep state conspiracy in which elements of the state, it's pretty arbitrary, but it's usually, you know, liberal elements of the state, you know, they're tied up in uh, all of the, you know, Pizzagate stuff, all of the trafficking, whatever. That's the deep state. That's bad. But there's other parts of the state, you know, usually it's parts of the military, it's the Navy, it's whatever. Um, and they're engaged in like a protracted, you know, secret, Operation to deal with all of this All of this is tied together With sort of a millenarian narrative Which is really just an extension Of the sort of left behind Theology of you know uh, Right wing evangelicals you know it's like Yes there's evil but you know uh, There's an elect who will be saved we are That elect God will vanquish all Of our enemies with one great flood Or whatever or in the case of what They were all (laughs) you know they were all sitting Around waiting watching Joe Biden's inauguration being like all right any minute now they're gonna bring out the sealed indictments. They're going to unseal all those indictments. They're going to round up all the Democrats. Didn't happen. Apparently, like, there are numerous documented instances of people like literally sitting around their TVs. They believed in QAnon so hard that they actually thought that was going to happen. They were really disappointed. But so this movie, uh, you know, I suppose you could say it it has a little bit of that in that there are these dramatic payoffs where one of the bad guys has justice done to him really hard, you know, or there's these kind of uh, heroic moments or whatever. But honestly, I thought it was missing a little bit of the sort of, you know, jouissance of that. I could have used, honestly, a little more crazy evangelical movie stuff. I was a little disappointed we didn't get that. But I think the more important point is there's no deep state in this. What's portrayed is a child sex trafficking operation that is global in scale. There is literally no sense of what any of the kind of underlying motivations are. There's no sense that this is part of a unified conspiracy, which which is fundamental to something like QAnon or to any conspiracy theory or, you know, the various moral panics that emerge from them. This movie just presents child sex trafficking as, I mean, almost like a sort of force of nature. There's just sort of this evil in the world, which, you know, it falls to the good people to root out. You know, perhaps that's a conscious choice that's been made. They want to appeal to a wider audience. I mean, there are a number of positive uh, reviews of this movie from perfectly mainstream sources. Owen Gleiberman, for example, in Variety writes, Let's assume that, like me, you're not a right-wing fundamentalist conspiracy theorist looking for a dark faith-based suspicion film to see over the holiday weekend. Even then, you needn't hold extreme beliefs to experience Sound and Freedom as a compelling movie that shines an authentic light on one of the crucial criminal horrors of our time. One that Hollywood has mostly shied away from. There's There's a number of other mainstream reviews in that vein. And so, you know, if that was a conscious choice on the part of the people who made this film, you know, I think it was a good one, strategically speaking anyway, in terms of, you know, broadening the appeal of this movie. But to me, it really neutered the film of what I was looking for, because unlike Owen Gleiberman, I actually was looking for a right-wing fundamentalist conspiracy film, because that would have been more fun.
1: Well, I do agree that it has more of the sheen of a real movie to it. I mean, it has professional actors in it, and I've seen movies that are technically worse than this. Like, there are a lot of the scenes, like, when The Flash. Well, yeah, like, there are a lot of the scenes when they're in South America that are, like, quite nicely lit and, you know, composed, and basic things like that. I think on the storytelling level, it's pretty bad. It's terrible. (laughs) Definitely, uh, thumb is down. (laughs) just to be clear (laughs) but what you're saying might be a consequence of the fact that the movie was completed in 2018 and presumably written in 2016 maybe filmed in 2017 i mean i don't know it's a couple of years old now and jim caviezel in hitting the the promotional circuit for this movie i mean jim caviezel who's always been a right-wing figure has been saying a lot of things about adrenochrome and you know has definitely been on the far right talk show circuit The idea that this is a QAnon movie, I think, comes more from the promotional campaign than it does from the movie itself. The presence of Mira Sorvino in this movie, you know, apart from the fact that, you know, gotta eat, gotta make money seems to harken back to an earlier time in her public persona when, you know, she's been an activist on human trafficking issues and, of course, was, you know, a very visible presence in the Me Too movement of 2017. When we were talking to Alex Shepard on the episode about God's Not Dead 2 a few weeks ago, he identified that it was a movie that felt like it was the late Romney, early Trump era in the way that it tried to position itself as a sort of facts and logic movie.
2: God's Not Dead 2, that is. That's right.
1: I mean, when Caviezel makes another movie and uh, he will make another movie yeah, based made on 150
2: million dollars so far no signs of stopping
1: it will be interesting to see if like they lean a little more into like this is a movie that positions it as largely a problem from without yes, you know it's absolutely it's, it does say in the text at the end that America is the largest consumer of child sex mm. in fact those are the exact words yeah. odd way to phrase it but yeah that's what it says on screen and you know we get the sense like Caviezel in the movie has to pose as like a shitty american tourist the movie positions mexico and south america as these spaces where you know the worst of america go to basically soil it'll be interesting to see though if future movies along these lines like are they set in hollywood are they set in washington is there gonna be you know the oprah surrogate or the tom hanks surrogate or whatever the really crazy like q people think are are like the leaders of the cabal And I do feel confident there will be more movies in this vein because the box office success of this movie, yes, there's astroturfing, but it's not just astroturfing. Like, there are all sorts of right-wing products that get astroturfed onto the New York Times bestseller list, but this one has, like... We're feeling the cultural resonance of this movie. There's something in the air about this. And it's because the movie's right. There is a child sex trafficking industry. And we all saw, you know, Jeffrey Epstein kill himself. (laughs) We all know stuff like this is going on. And you can only have that happening in broad daylight for so long before that energy has to go somewhere.
2: Right. And I guess it's just a a concluding thought. One more thing I'd like to add about the film's politics. You know, I have... Framed it as something that's sort of deliberately broad that's kind of a right-wing movie, you know, shorn of a lot of the things that we might expect in, you know, 2023 for, you know, a right-wing movie with these themes. Well, I think that's basically true of this film. I still do think its politics are fundamentally right-wing. Everything about this movie is right-wing from the way it looks to the dialogue. You mean in terms of affect? Yeah, I don't know what uh, Owen Gleiberman was smoking. But I mean to step back from you know the film itself for a moment you know one cannot ignore the centrality of children and the panics about the victimization of children in various ways those are in many respects in different areas you know the animating thing on the right at the moment you can find the behind so many of the grievances that you know predominate you know among the, the Republican base uh, you know and have really since uh, you know 2015 2016 although of course they have antecedents that go further back than that. All of this stuff, of course, is happening at a time when the right in America and also uh, outside of America as well in many cases, but especially in America, is really abandoning even the pretense of sort of fealty to liberal democratic institutions, to popular democracy. Parts of the intellectual right are being increasingly open about the fact that uh, what they would like more than anything is, uh, you know, some kind of a theocracy where, you know, the, the models they look to are things like Viktor Orban's Hungary. There's a, clearly an admiration on parts of the right for Putinism as well. Even the you know, invasion of Ukraine has done actually very little to blunt that, I think. You know, there's kind of a increasingly open fantasies of increasingly uh, restrictive and authoritarian minority rule. To go back to the film for a second, these kind of uh, you know, moral panics surrounding children are a key piece of the puzzle here. Because, you know, the QAnon shock troops that are showing up to school board meetings or increasingly, you know, uh, running for state legislatures, getting elected to Congress, whatever it is. The people who are becoming, you know, activists around this stuff, who are building, you know, whole empires of grift out of it. QAnon, uh, as it's become more and more diffuse, has just become a kind of franchise model. People are using this to sell all kinds of stuff. What it all comes down to, and what I think, you know, helps legitimize a great deal of it anyway, is the idea that, look, if there's a massive, you know, conspiracy that is targeting millions of children, I mean, if you knew something like that existed, right, basically anything is permitted to stop that, right? And not only against such an enemy are all things permitted, but fighting them is actually, you know, you're, you're doing the work of God, You're not just like a mean-spirited suburbanite who's been brain poisoned by the internet and, uh, you know, too much network news or whatever. No, you're actually a soldier fighting in a holy war through your posting, through your voting, through whatever completely insane shit that you're doing on the side of that. You're actually on the righteous side of a cosmic struggle. And this film, particularly at any point where a character made reference to God, I mean, that's what was emanating from it for me, and fundamentally what made it, I think, arguably the most unpleasant thing we've ever watched for this podcast.
0: You can run on for a long time Run on for a long time Run on for a long time Sooner or later, gotta cut you down Sooner or later, gotta cut you down Go tell that long-tongued liar, go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's gonna cut them down. Tell him that God's gonna cut them down. Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee. Talking to the man from Galilee He spoke to me With a voice so sweet I thought I heard the shuffle of angels He called my name And my heart stood still When he said, John, go do my will Go tell that long-tongued liar Go and tell that Midnight rider Tell the rambler, the gambler, the Backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down Tell him that God's gonna